Our primary reading this morning is from Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 33 through 43. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? And they, the disciples that Jesus had just appeared to, rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? That is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The word of the Lord. I want to share with something this, with you this morning uh, that I have noticed about the resurrection stories. Uh, it's a small detail, really, but one that doesn't really get talked about. However, I, I think it is one of the most glaring oversights when we talk about Easter. In fact, I think it's such an important omission that if we were to take notice of it today, it might just revolutionize what you think about God, the afterlife, and this life now. So, what is this overlooked detail? What is this incredibly important element in the story of the resurrection? That Jesus had a body. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, hmm, we got a real Sherlock Holmes of a pastor here. Bro might need to ask for a refund from whatever seminary gave him a degree. But hear me out this morning. If you don't think this is a worthwhile observation, I will refund you the price of admission and I will buy you a drink. First mimosas on me. So where do we see this biblical emphasis on the resurrected God of the universe return to life with a body? Well, in Luke 24, we find a scene that takes place on Easter evening. It recounts the very first time that a previously executed Jesus, who has been buried three days earlier, appears to his core group of disciples. Because up until this point in Luke's narrative... Some of Jesus' disciples have discovered an empty tomb that morning, and now Jesus has appeared in disguise to two disciples who had already given up and were headed back to their hometown, but no one has actually seen Jesus yet. That is, the way Jesus looked like before he died. The Jesus they did three years of ministry with the Jesus they could touch. So what does Jesus do? Well, just a low-key teleportation into a locked room. 
which understandably terrifies everyone. And you know, I really do think that this happened the way that Luke described, because it is very much in Jesus' style. Because even when Jesus did real high-key things like walking on water, he was always really low-key about it. Like, oh, hey, guys, good to see you on the water. How's the boat doing? Oh, oh, you're sinking? Oh, okay, let me just turn down the wind and the waves a little bit. Okay, we good? All right, good to see you guys. And so in this scene, Jesus says very casually in verse 38, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Well, I don't know, Jesus, maybe because you were just brutally murdered three days ago, and now this feels more like an episode of Ghost Hunters. But to calm what would have been an understandable freakout by the disciples, Jesus says in the very next verse, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. In the very first encounter with the resurrected Jesus, Jesus effectively says, hey, I have a body. However, Jesus takes this one step further. Jesus isn't just trying to prove that he's not a ghost or an apparition or that perhaps he has some sort of imitation impossible burger body that looks real, but actually it's plant-based. No, Jesus goes out of his way to prove that his body is a very real body. And what's the best way to prove that? Eat something. In verse 41 we read, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Y'all, of all the things that Jesus could be doing in his very first return appearance to his core disciples, of all the things that Luke could record, there is an oddly disproportional amount of this homecoming where Jesus is like, I'm starving, can I get a snack? Why? Because Jesus has a body. Now again, you might still be a little confused here, like, okay, preacher man, what's your point? I get that Jesus has a body, so what? Friends, the fact that Jesus has a body after his death and resurrection is good news for all of us this morning in three ways. And it can radically shift how we understand God's plan for the world, God's plan for your afterlife, and God's plan for your life right now. So first, let's talk about God's plan for the world. When we see that Jesus has a body, it means that God cares deeply about this world. Despite what you may have heard, God is not going to get rid of the earth. God is going to restore it. And yes, I know some of you might have been told as a kid that God destroyed the world once with water and then he promised he'd never do it again. So he consulted with his divine attorney and he's like, okay, fine, deal. But that doesn't mean I can't destroy it with fire. Genesis got the flood. Revelation gets the inferno. But here's how we know that's not the future. The Bible says that the resurrected Jesus 
is the beginning of God's plan for the world, for every part of creation. Here's what I mean. As Jesus lay in the tomb for three days, his body began to experience a process of decay and decomposition, the slow destruction that would have become every cell. In fact, this is how Christians describe the effects of sin. You see, sin is not really about breaking religious rules or a moral code. Sin is about our decisions, our actions, our economies, our systems that create the slow but inevitable destruction, decomposition, and decay of everything that is good. So what does God do with the decaying body of Jesus rendered dead by the violence of human sin? Does God get rid of it? Does God burn it up? Does God trade it out for a fresh body? No. God restores Jesus' body. God renews it fully. God reverses the process of destruction, decomposition, and decay to bring enduring eternal life back into every cell of Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul, who once hunted Christians only to have a radical, life-changing encounter with Christ, realized the profound implications of what had happened in the bodily resurrection. He described it this way to a, a church in first century Corinth, Greece, in a letter. He wrote, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits. In other words, what God did in Jesus is the beginning of what God will do in all of creation. And because of that, this world still matters. And what you contribute to this world can matter infinitely. This means that what you are doing on earth right now, from the tree you plant, from the art you create, for the justice you work towards, even those bits of kindness you put into the world. It all has the potential to last forever. God has no interest in burning it up. God will take what is good in the world and restore it and renew it and give it eternal life. Why? Because Jesus has a body. And yet, not only will the resurrection affect the world, all of creation in this way, it will affect your afterlife as well. Because despite what you may have heard, your final destination is not some disembodied spirit in the clouds where you play harps and sing cheesy Christian church songs on repeat. And apart from the fact that that sounds more like purgatory than paradise, the Christian hope for the afterlife is actually what we see in the resurrected Jesus. Because think about it. For Jesus to defeat sin, for Jesus to, to overcome evil, he did not need to come back with a body. For God to vindicate Jesus... Jesus could have returned like a spirit, as the disciples first imagined. 
And that still would have been pretty impressive to see that God's enemies killed his mortal body, but they could not kill his immortal soul. And now Jesus' final destination in heaven can be yours one day as well. But that's not what happens. Jesus, the risen first fruit of creation, comes not only with an immortal soul, but with an immortal body as well. Friends, despite the cliche, you are not merely souls with bodies, as if your body is a shell. You are soul and body. God made both, and God intends to restore both. Your afterlife, then, is not some disembodied drift in heaven far away from earth, but an embodied perfection on earth that has been restored by heaven. You see, 600 years before Jesus, the Jewish prophet Ezekiel spoke of just this kind of very physical and tangible future. This has been a story long told in Scripture That free from the grave, your body free from all ailments and insecurities will run and dance, climb and surf, explore and discover, eat and drink, invent and create in this same world that God has not burned up but radically restored and renewed. Why? Because Jesus has a body. And yet, the bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't just mean that God will restore this world. It doesn't just mean God will restore my body. These two future realities should transform my current reality. My understanding of the afterlife one day should transform my understanding of this life now. Because here's one of the biggest problems in religion. Religion has a bad reputation, and one that is deserved, of telling you to deal with the suffering of this life by hoping on the reward of the afterlife. For telling you the physicality of this life is inferior to the spirituality of the afterlife. And this isn't a new critique. The German philosopher Karl Marx said the same thing when he famously wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. Marx would go on to say that we need it to abolish religion because it promises illusory happiness and so we could get to the business when people could realize the possibility of real happiness. For Marx... His grievance against religion was that spirituality and the afterlife were weaponized to rob people of their happiness in this life, to make you sit compliantly in your physical or emotional anguish out of some sort of religious duty. And maybe you're here today, and something similar has been said to you by religious people. And you should give up wanting a better life today and just wait for heaven. 
That God wants you to give up on your hopes and dreams, even if they're good hopes and dreams, because God will instead reward you in the sweet by and by. Or perhaps that God has even ordained your suffering and that you should not seek to overcome it because that is supposed to be your cross to bear. You've been fed an opiate of Christian religion. And yes, on some days, perhaps it does dull the emotional pain and heartache. But on other days, you wonder how God seems to care so much for an afterlife and so little for your life right now. The solution for Marx then was to abolish religion and bring revolution. But friends, because Jesus has a body, Jesus has beaten Marx to the punch. You see that when we trust that God has plans to renew and restore the world, that this is our future. When we trust that God has plans to renew and restore my body, that this is my future, then the purpose of my life changes. My purpose cannot just be being religious until I die. My purpose is about participating with God wherever I can, whenever I can, however I can, to make God's future my current reality. And my hopes, my dreams, my relationships, my community, and overcoming suffering and injustice, the revolution initiated by God has already begun. For what does Jesus say the moment that he sees his disciples. Peace be with you. Not peace in some pseudo-spiritual sense. Not peace in some distant heaven one day. Peace be with you now. You see, if I have received Christ into my life, Everything in my life can start to change now. I don't have to sit and wait. The risen and resurrected Christ arrives fully embodied and offering the full embodiment of peace. And so that's a promise you want to receive. If that's a story that you want to live into, Easter is your signpost and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is your physical invitation. Why? Because Jesus has a body. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, let us go to God in prayer and confession. Would you pray with me?
All right, Colin, we've got some, got some good questions. All right. So what about cremation? Does that hinder our afterlife? This has actually been a, a debate in some Christian circles. Um, but no, I don't think it hinders our afterlife because uh, God is capable of restoring every bit of our carbon and atoms. So uh, if, you, if you know someone who's done creation or you desire to do creation, I actually plan on, on being cremated because there's Same. not much space left, right? You know, um, I, I have full confidence that the Lord will still restore every part of me back to glory. What was Jesus doing from Friday to Sunday? Whoa, this is a big question. We've done some sermons on this. Uh, this is uh, historically called the harrowing of Hades, where, where Jesus goes to, to those who um, have already passed, who have died, um, and, and brings them in uh, to, to union with God. Um, and so this is, there's uh, Eastern Orthodox iconography is beautiful. This They have these great paintings where like, you see Jesus like, reaching down into the grave, pulling out Adam and Eve. They look like they, they are, they've had a bad day, right? They're just like a haggard, but they're like, oh, Jesus, great. Um, and so, yeah, Jesus wasn't even just sitting around uh, in that time. Jesus was actively rescuing and redeeming people uh, because that is just what Jesus does all the time. Also, um, I think it is, uh, is it either Augustine or there's some other good Catholic theologians that basically like, Jesus is like going down to hell, like kicking down the door and like doing a Rambo thing on Satan. There's some pretty cool descriptions of it. I'm here for it. All right, last one. How do we consistently differentiate healthy earthly joy with prosperity gospel? This is a fantastic question because mm-hmm. I think there are two poles that kind of two extremes that can exist within the Christian tradition. So one is, which we kind of pushed back a little bit this morning on, is this idea that like you're just supposed to suffer. God wants you to suffer. And, and, and being really spiritual means just suffering all the time, right? Um, I, I think there's some problems with that. And I think we address those today. But on the other end, there's something called the prosperity gospel, which is God just wants you to be happy and healthy and rich. And typically this goes into this idea that if you have enough faith, if you you pray enough, you do enough, you give enough, right? Then you will get all these great blessings. And the answer is that neither of these extremes hold up in reality, neither of these extremes bring joy, and neither of these extremes are biblical. And so there is this weird tension to which I don't think you can land on, but to say that God does desire joy, God does provide redemption, Jesus does bring healing, but it's not a binary or mechanical thing of believe enough, have faith enough, do prayers enough, um, or give enough, certainly not, uh, and that will create a positive outcome. So there's this idea that we trust in God for all things, even in our suffering, but we have hope of things changing. Fantastic answer. Thank you for that. If y'all have any other questions, and I know there have already been some other great questions texted in. If anybody online has any questions, feel free to send them in to Colin. He will address the extra questions from this service and from the next service. So if you also want to know what other people are texting in, make sure you follow us on Facebook, and Colin will address them on Facebook Live tomorrow. Awesome. Thanks, Sam.